0: Friends, if you haven't done so already, take your copy of the Scripture and turn with me to Psalm 17. And before we read this passage together, let us seek our Heavenly Father in prayer. Oh, gracious Lord, we come as servants who need to be instructed by Your Word. And we pray for the awakening power of Your Spirit to open our eyes, to give our hearts receptivity to the truth We pray that You would make an indelible impression upon our soul with Your Word that is living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword. Lord, do this for Your own glory's sake that we would be conformed to the image of Jesus Christ in whose name we pray. Amen. Well, brethren, hear now as we read the Word of the Lord again. Psalm 17 in its entirety. A prayer of David. Hear a just cause, O Lord, attend to my cry. Give ear to my prayer from lips free of deceit. From Your presence let my vindication come. Let Your eyes behold the right. You have tried my heart. You have visited me by night. You have tested me and You will find nothing. I have purposed that my mouth will not transgress." With regard to the works of man, by the word of Your lips, I have avoided the ways of the violent. My steps have held fast to Your paths. My feet have not slipped. I call upon You, for You will answer me, O God. Incline Your ear to me. Hear my words. Wondrously show Your steadfast love, O Savior of those who seek refuge from their adversaries at Your right hand. Keep me as the apple of Your eye. Hide me in the shadow of Your wings from the wicked who do me violence, my deadly enemies who surround me. They close their hearts to pity. With their mouths they speak arrogantly. They have now surrounded our steps. They set their eyes to cast us to the ground. He is like a lion eager to tear as a young lion lurking in ambush. Arise, O Lord, confront him, subdue him. Deliver my soul from the wicked by Your sword from men by Your hand, O Lord, from men of the world whose portion is in this life. You fill their womb with treasure. They are satisfied with children and they leave their abundance to their infants. As for me, I shall behold Your face in righteousness. When I awake, I shall be satisfied with Your likeness. Thus far, the Word of God. May He bless His Word tonight to our hearts. Well, we've noted several times in our study thus far of book one of the Psalms that conflict appears to be the major theme. Trouble is everywhere. And the psalmist is recounting his cries for mercy, most often being David, as he's attacked from Saul and Absalom. But occasionally, like last week in Psalm 16, we get a break from the emergency psalms save me, answer me, give ear to my groaning, and so forth. And in those little breaks, the focus is on the greatness of God and His grace into which the Lord has brought the believer that we might commune with Him. Thus, we could say there's really a secondary theme in book one of the Psalms. In conflict, give me communion, give me nearness to God. Well, tonight we return to an emergency, to trouble, to earnest pleas for vindication that the foe would not get the victory. And yet in that conflict, David looks to the Lord's covenant mercies and he longs to dwell in the shadow of God's wings. He wants the Lord to arise and defend him, but he wants the Lord to bring him close. Let's reflect on these themes and let's see together three things in our passage, we begin in verses 1 to 5 with prayer and defense. Prayer and defense. Notice in this prayer of David that he begins with great urgency, and it's reflected in the staccato shouts for help in verses 1 and 2. Hear, attend, give ear, let your eyes behold. These are impassioned pleas from a desperate and needy soul who trusts. That Yahweh is listening. And sometimes, brethren, prayer doesn't start with adoration, as Jesus taught us in that great form of prayer, the Lord's Prayer. Oh, Father in heaven, you know, the Father who art in heaven, how would be your name? Sometimes the emergency is so dire that we rush into God's presence as a child coming to a father and we scream for help. And that's David's position. And we go on to see in the psalm that David is hunted as though he's a wildebeest trying to escape a stalking lion. He's pursued, surrounded. He's on the cusp of being devoured. And this all from David's perspective is happening unjustly. He's chased for destruction when he hasn't done anything wrong. He's innocent of the charges against him. In fact, not only does David pray forcefully pleading for Yahweh's immediate intervention, David asserts, His righteousness. Verse 1 literally is, Hear, Yahweh, righteousness. And then David adds verse 2, From your presence let my vindication come. In other words, Lord, show me to be in the right. Verse 2b, let your eyes behold the right. David knows the judge of all the earth will do right. He's a God of faithfulness and without injustice. Therefore, he's praying, Lord, see the wrong. I'm praying to you, verse 1, with lips free of deceit. Now, David is not being melodramatic in prayer. He's not glossing over his failures as we often do. Look at what she did to me and vindicate me. Or look at what he said and vindicate me, even though our sin probably occasioned the wrong being visited upon us. In this case, David is arguing his integrity in prayer. And yet, he doesn't champion the justice of his cause with blindness to his own sin. Rather, he submits the whole situation to the tribunal of the judge, the Lord. He says, verse 3, You have tried my heart. You have visited me by night. You have tested me. David is calling for the scrutinizing gaze of God to search Him and know Him by night. That is, every night. Brethren, do we do this? When we have a sense of rightness, do we come and bring it to the presence of God knowing that we live before the face of God? David's got a sensitive conscience. And he submitted his conscience and his deeds to God for examination. But under the Lord's searching gaze, nothing has been revealed. That is, the Spirit hasn't brought conviction to David about any particular wrongdoing. In fact, David says in verse 3, as God tests him, you will find nothing. Now that statement may give you the shivers. How could the God, who if He should mark iniquity, none of us could stand, how could He find nothing in David? Well, I tell you, David is not saying that he's sinless, for there is no one who does not sin, as Solomon will say later in 1 Kings 8. David is not claiming complete purity. What he means is this. In the matter in question, probably the accusation that he's betrayed King Saul that he is a duplicitous man, subverting Saul's authority, trying to kick Saul off the throne. In this matter, he is innocent. David has displayed his loyalty to God and his loyalty to the Lord's anointed, the king, Saul. And David's resolved, into verse three, I have purposed that my mouth will not transgress. Oh, there's something for us to learn by that statement fighting sin in ourselves, fighting sin against any violation of the law of God, takes fierce resolution. It takes a tenacious spirit not to tolerate the appearance of sin on our lips. We aim to exercise the grace of self-control by the Spirit and put to death the misdeeds of the body when sin seeks to overtake us and reign in us to take hold of our very tongues, we go to war. We purpose to stand firm. And we exert energy, great energy, not to let sin reign in our mortal bodies that we would obey its laws. You see, David has been in a fight within himself not to permit transgression to arise. And he's purposed not to dishonor God. But even as he's purposed not to dishonor God, he acknowledges the grace of God working in him. Verse 4, With regard to the works of man, by the word of your lips, I have avoided the ways of the violent. What is it that kept David from killing Saul? What held David back from running him through when David was in the cave and Saul came in to relieve himself and didn't know David was there? Verse Samuel 24. What kept David back from spe- from spearing the man to the ground in 1 Samuel 26 when he was lying there asleep? It was God's Word. By the word of your lips, I have avoided the ways of the violent. God's commands have ruled David's heart. God's law has been a rule of righteousness for David. Directing his steps. Turning him from sin. Was that the case for us, dear people? Have we hidden the law of God in our heart so that we might not sin against Him? Are we regularly taking in God's Word with its rebukes and corrections and training in righteousness so that we would be restrained from iniquity? And with God's Word serving as our counselor, testifying to us what is right, do we acknowledge that it is His grace through the Word that has kept us? David looks at his life in view of Scripture and he says, verse 5, My steps have held fast to your paths. My feet have not slipped. Again, David's not saying he's never sinned, but he's saying in the pressure of this situation, he's held on to the Lord's word, which lays out the path of righteousness. In this trouble, what has David done? He's run to Scripture. And yes, there's been a struggle in David's heart. Go read 1 Samuel. You'll see David wrestling with the internal sins of discontentment and unbelief and anxiety and anger. But in his actions, he is held fast to being faithful to the Lord. So when he comes to pray in this emergency, he's saying in effect, Lord, my cry comes to You from a heart of loyalty. I'm not a hypocrite as I seek Your help. I'm committed to Your Word, so attend to my prayer. Now brethren, the logic of David's cry should really catch our attention. What's the connection between Yahweh's ear and our faithfulness? What's the connection between Yahweh's ear and our faithfulness? Well, do you remember Scripture says elsewhere, Psalm 66 verse 18, If I had cherished iniquity in my heart, the Lord would not have heard. For Proverbs 1 explicitly speaks of the covenant people of God ignoring God's commands, refusing to hear His voice, and then going their own way. And then when trouble comes and they cry to the Lord, what happens? Yahweh says, Proverbs 1, He won't answer because these people hated knowledge. They didn't want His counsel in the Word. Proverbs one thirty three: whoever listens to me shall dwell secure. David is a man who's been listening. He's walking by the light of Scripture and therefore he has the confidence to say, Lord, You know what is right. You know I'm being unjustly treated. So take action and vindicate me. Now, we may never be in a situation where someone is hunting us down to kill us, but we can have the assurance that God hears us because we're loyal to Him. But our lives must not be an obstacle to the prayer hearing God. Is that true for us? Will we have the blessing of close communion with God? A God who listens to us because we're His devoted servants. You remember King Saul will come to the Lord at the end of his life, 1 Samuel 28. He's in an emergency. The Philistines are about to attack. And Saul prays, but he doesn't repent. And the Lord didn't hear. And what did Saul do next? He went to a witch rather than turn from his sin. Let us never seek some other refuge than the Lord. Let us run to God and demonstrate we want communion with Him because we live for Him. And what will He do for those who seek Him he will listen. He will be our helper. Well, then, secondly, see with me prayer and description in verses 6 to 12. David begins the second section of the psalm with a declaration of confidence in the God who hears. He says, verse 6, I call upon you, for you will answer me, O God. What an astounding statement that is. David has walked with God and he's watched God answer prayer over and over and over again so that he now trusts in the latest emergency that the Lord is approachable, that He's ready to listen, that He's full of goodness, that He bends down His ear to His people to hear when the needy cry. Brethren, do we have that same assumption about the Lord our God? You know, one of the fiercest temptations that the devil can bring against us is that God doesn't listen to us. God doesn't care. Or as is put on the lips of the wicked in Psalm 3 to David, there is no salvation for Him, for David in God. In other words, your prayers will fall on deaf ears. Well, David doesn't believe that. He cries to the Lord because You will answer me. Do we believe that about the Lord? Are we tempted to think that the Lord is deaf to us? You know, one thing that could provoke that kind of hard thought about God is a failure to take note of the Lord answering our prayers. Many of us, if we're honest, we have a really bad habit of praying in our trouble, but then failing to return thanks when the Lord gave us an answer. We don't mentally note our Lord showing us that He listens. We don't establish an Ebenezer, thus far you have helped me, and I have a monument that you are a God who answers prayer. Further, we can add that we often don't pay attention to the answers to prayer that God gives the whole people of God in the church. You know, one of the greatest blessings of coming to a Wednesday night prayer meeting is the repeated display of God answering prayer. We have brought specific petitions and we have seen the Lord answer. And what does that do for us? It builds up our faith. Well, David likewise, he can look at his life and he can see from the days when he went to rescue sheep from the lion and the bear that God heard him. When he fought Goliath, God heard him. When he was a military leader in Saul's court and went out against the Philistines, God heard him. David can look and see the moments when Saul was trying to kill him and God heard him. So the Lord is his refuge. Lord, I know you hear prayer. And the logic of this psalm is I keep praying because I know you keep answering. Therefore, in the present crisis, he prays, verse 6, incline your ear to me. That's the bend down language. Bend, bend down or stretch out your ear to me. Hear my words. And the sense is, Lord, because I know you listen, take action. And then he prays for the action to occur, verse 7. Wondrously show your steadfast love. Now the verb here is interesting. Wondrously show. On the one hand, it highlights the power of our God for whom nothing is too difficult or nothing is too wonderful or hard. He's the God who can do exceedingly abundantly beyond all we ask or think. But the root of this verb literally means to make a distinction. Make a distinction. It's used in telling places in the Exodus account. It highlights how the Lord in several of the plague scenarios made a distinction between Egypt and Israel. While Egypt got judgment, the land of Goshen, where Israel was, fell under the special care of the Lord. He made a distinction. He spared them. And that's most strikingly evident in the tenth plague when the destroying angel comes out among the Egyptians and kills the firstborn, and Yahweh made a distinction with Israel, and He provided them a way to be covered. Blood that could mark the door so that the angel would pass by. With that background in mind, Yahweh, make a distinction in showing your steadfast love. David's prayer, as one writer put it here, would be this. Show yourself, O oh God, to be the Exodus God again. And make a distinction with me. Show me to be the special object of your care. Be my Savior, because, verse 7, you are the Savior of those who seek refuge from their adversaries at your right hand. Do you see what David is doing? He's casting himself on the unceasing covenant love of God. And he trusts that not only does Yahweh listen, Yahweh pities the needy, the weak, the afflicted. And then David furthers the imagery in verse 8. Keep me as the apple of your eye. Now we all know how sensitive our eyes are. They require special treatment, don't they? We shield them from the sun. We shield them from flying objects when we're cutting things. We profusely blink. You know that moment when you go to see the eye doctor and that puff comes in your eye and you blink and you blink and you blink. Or when a little drop comes in and you're kind of freaking out about it and you blink and you blink and you blink. We have a great concern for our eyes. Well, David is praying in a white like manner for the special treatment of his soul. Just like our eyes are delicate. I am delicate. In his language is quoting the Lord's care of His people in the wilderness. Deuteronomy 32, verse 10. Moses says, that Yahweh the covenant God had encircled Israel. He had cared for them with special food and water and clothing. He was like a mother eagle bearing her young on her wings. And then get this, Moses said, He kept them as the apple of His eye. You see what David's doing? When he prays, he's quoting Scripture. So David is saying, Lord, don't just be the Exodus God to me with great power, making distinction, showing steadfast love. Be the God who walked with His people in the wilderness and gave special care. Lord, hide me in the shadow of Your wings. What a beautiful image that is. I'm a little chick. I'm naive, frail, vulnerable, cold. I'm lost. And You're loving enough to shield me, feed me, give me warmth, and drive away the threat. Lord, Your love is tender and it's attentive. David is asking God to give him this kind of protection. And he does so because he knows God is tender. He knows God abounds with compassion. that He's full of mercy and warmth. Again, brethren, is that what we believe about our Father? I know I've quoted John Owen's words to you before about the love of God and the way that we should view our Heavenly Father, but they bear repeating here. John Owen is encouraging us in his famous book, Communion with God, to I, our Father, in love, that our Heavenly Father is full of love, and we should ponder His free, eternal, and unchangeable affection to His people. And he says this, unacquaintedness with our mercies, our privileges, is our sin as well as our trouble. Unacquaintedness with the fact that the Father loves us and cares for us is our sin as well as our trouble. And this makes us go on heavily when we might rejoice and to be weak where we might be strong in the Lord. We're tempted, Owen says, to doubt our Father's goodwill toward us to think He doesn't really like us or He's put out with us or there's no sweetness at all in our Father toward us. But that is the furthest thing from the truth. For Owen says, and I quote, to secure us in His love, there is not anything that has a loving and tender nature in the world which God has not compared Himself to. He is a Father. He is a Mother. He is a shepherd. He is a hen over chicks. David believes that God has this kind of affection. That God is ready to guard and keep His people. That God is willing to take His people under duress into His warm embrace and shield us from the foe. Well, do we believe that? Do we cling to the truth that our Father loves us? How do we know He loves us? He sent His Son to save us. Indeed, when we were blinded by the devil, the Lord sent His light to shine into our hearts to give us the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Christ. Now this loving protection isn't for everyone. It's for those who seek refuge in the Lord. Those who call upon His name. Was well, that us? Do we seek the God who is love? The God who hides His people in the shadow of His wings? And then to further provoke the Lord to compassion. David launches into a description of his deadly enemies around him. Verse 9, they are men without pity. They are men who pour out arrogant words. Verse 10, their desire is to cast us to the ground. Verse 11, but then note how David moves from the collection of enemies to a ringleader of evil. Verse 12, he, singular, he, is like a lion eager to tear as a young lion lurking in ambush. Now, it's not hard to think of two enemies behind that description. One, of course, would be the focal point. Saul, who is stirring up men to attack David, sending men to ambush David when he goes into his house, claiming that David is working to betray him and therefore working in subterfuge. He's leading expeditions to hunt David down. But there's another personal enemy behind Saul's violence. And who is that? It's the devil himself. You wouldn't you know it is described like a roaring lion seeking to devour. Satan is a fierce adversary and he has destruction on his mind. Well, in this case, David the great king, the precursor of great David's greater son, the Word Jesus Christ. In an attack on David, is a strike at God's plan to bring the Messiah. We have to remember, while believers have certainly had moments of intense struggle and unjust assault, there is really a uniqueness to David's humiliation in that it foreshadows the sufferings of Jesus Himself. But again, the point of David providing this description is not to tell the Lord as if God doesn't know No, David believes that Yahweh is moved to compassion by our emergencies. Frequently in the Psalms and elsewhere in the Bible, we see this willingness to tell God the whole heart. I used to say to my wife when we first got married, just give me the Reader's Digest version. The Lord isn't interested in the Reader's Digest version. He wants the whole thing. He wants you to describe all your predicaments to Him. Why do that? Because He pities the afflicted. He's listening to you. He regards the lowly. He delights to intervene for those who, ha- who know they have no help but Him and then who are looking to Him. So David tells the Lord of all the evil done to him, the intent of these wicked men, the terror that he feels. Now there's something here of David's experience that's really distant from us in the West. We don't have bloodthirsty men breathing down our necks to kill us. But there are Christians today who do. There are believers who live daily with the threat of deadly enemies surrounding them. Think of the brothers and sisters in northern Africa, the Middle East, various places in Asia. They could cry out with the Apostle Paul, for your sake we are being killed all the day long. We are as sheep to be slaughtered. This text can tell you how to pray for these persecuted brethren. Lord, look at the horrors being committed against Your people, the beatings, the imprisonment, the girls snatched on their way to school, the church meetings interrupted, and at times showered with bullets. And we can plead to God, Lord, keep Your people as the apple of Your eye. Further, by remembering the way in which David's persecutions reflect Jesus' persecutions, we can also describe the evil, describe the ugly deeds of the devil, while not losing confidence that our Lord will hear. Because what ultimately happens with David? Well, the humiliated king becomes the exalted king. And likewise, what ultimately happens with Jesus? The crucified king becomes the resurrected and ascended king who subdues Satan, who overthrows him and puts the demons to open shame, triumphing over them in the cross. Our God has shown Himself to be the Savior of those who take refuge in Him. He is the delivering God. Well, you should come to Him and believe He loves you and cares. Describe the trouble of your soul and know that your Father looks to you. Jesus, when He reveals Himself as the friend of sinners, that's what the Father is like. And then third, we see with me. Prayer and destiny. Verses 13. The intensity of David's plea reaches a climax in verse 13. After this horrifying description of a lion ready to ambush, clearly identifying David as a dead man if the Lord doesn't intervene, he, he can't prevail. So he calls on God, Arise, O Lord! Confront Him! Subdue Him! Deliver My soul from the wicked, that is, the wicked one, by Your sword. Note again, the singular enemy described. There's a particular foe from whom David needs deliverance. And that bully needs confrontation. He needs to be bound and beaten and bested, struck down. Then David expands back out from the captain who's leading the trouble to a collection of foes. Verse 14, Deliver my soul from men by Your hand, O Lord, from men of this world whose portion is in this life. David sees that only God can subdue the lion and all his flesh-eating friends, if I can put it that way. Only God has the power to strike down such mighty adversaries. And while David is praying, no doubt, for a specific temporal deliverance from a physical enemy, Saul, it's not hard for us to parallel the language to pleading to God to save us from the prince of the power of the air from the Spirit working in the sons of disobedience, from Satan who comes to destroy us. He threatens. He wreaks havoc. He terrorizes. He would drag us down to destruction. And what we need is the very power of God to subdue the dragon, the old serpent. We need the Lord to send one who can intervene for us. And brethren, that's exactly what He's done. He sent Christ to do what work? 1 John three eight to destroy the works of the devil, to take those under the power of the adversary and set us at liberty to bring us out of the domain of darkness and into God's beloved kingdom. And how is that done? It's done by a decisive act of the Lord Jesus Christ to arise. Arise, O Lord, subdue the strong man, bind him by the cross and the resurrection, put the death nail in Satan's coffin, The demons know that that's coming. You may remember among the many encounters Jesus has with demons, there's a particular moment when Jesus encounters two men full of demons. Now, Mark and Luke tell us that it's the Gerizim demoniac. They focus on that one man among the tombs. But Matthew indicates, actually there were two, and the demons cried out, what have you to do with us, O Son of God? Have you come to torment us Before the time. Before the time. Do you understand what that means? The demons know that there's a time coming for their torment. They already know they're losers. That they're defeated. Jesus, by His very appearance, will bring deliverance. And the day of victory is assured where the devil and his hordes will be thrown into the lake of fire. There will be decisive deliverance. That's what David's praying for. Lord, bring that to pass. And yet as David prays, he focuses here on the difference between him and his enemies. And he paints it in terms of a great contrast of desire. Verse 14, these men are men of the world whose portion is in this life. While these wicked men live on earth, they have experienced the common grace blessings that God gives to people. Remember the The sun rises on the evil and the good. God sends rain on the just and the unjust. Well, in like manner, these wicked men have tasted the goodness of God in having children. God has given them a posterity. He's given them families and an abundance to pass on to their children so that, into verse 14, they can leave their abundance to their infants. These men live for this world and the abundance that they can collect, store up, and then pass on to their sons. So much of Saul's beef with David is Saul trying to protect his legacy. He wants to go down in history as a man with a dynasty, a man with a kingdom to leave to his sons. And that's the sense behind the phrase that these men of this world are satisfied with children. Now in contrast, David isn't saying it's wrong to delight in children. Children are a heritage from the Lord. But these wicked men think life is all about having kids and leaving your stuff to them. In other words, there's nothing beyond the material treasures of this life. Life is about wealth and watching your children enjoy your wealth. Now, is that a problem with people today? Well, people are caught up in accumulating stuff and then arguing about who's, who gets to enjoy it. You should ask Joe sometime about the detailed legal disputes over the portion of the men of this world. Ask him about how many of the children fight to get their share in daddy's stuff or mama's stuff. These people are all wrapped up in what's in this life. Their treasures are here. Now already, there's a contrast in the vocabulary from the previous song. The men of this world have their portion in this life. But what did David say in Psalm 16, verse 5? The Lord, Yahweh, is my portion. Same word. The Lord is my portion and my cup. You see, brethren, the crucial difference between the wicked and the godly is this. The wicked are captivated by the world and its stuff. They either have it and indulge in it, or they pine for it that they might covet more and more. But the godly delight in the Lord. The godly find their great joy in knowing the Savior of the world, knowing the the King over all. That's why they can say when death comes, to die is what? It's gain. Because to depart and be with Christ, in the words of the Apostle Paul, is very much better. Wicked men are too easily satisfied. To use the language of C.S. Lewis and his book, The Weight of Glory. He talks of the description of the foolish men of this world who are like petulant children who would rather play with mud pies in a slum than have a holiday at the sea. Men of this world are too easily satisfied. But David is satisfied with something else. Verse 15, as for me, I shall behold your face in righteousness. When I awake, I shall be satisfied in your likeness. There's so much to ponder here, but here's what David is saying. He's telling us that the men of this world find their greatest joy in establishing an earthly legacy. David finds his greatest joy in seeing the face of God. Now, while David is praying for a temporal deliverance, rescue from Saul, but really here in verse 15, he's looking to a final deliverance, to lasting vindication when he will behold God's face. And it's really impossible to read this and not think about Jesus' beatitudes. Do you remember what it is? Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. This derived from this thought. David is already anticipating a life beyond the grave, a day when this man full of trouble here will be full of sanctified, standing in the presence of God and looking upon Him. David's greatest desire isn't for safety. His desire is for communion with God, forever being near the lover of his soul. And he seeks this with a certainty of hope. He says, when I awake, I shall be satisfied with your likeness. What does that mean? What is this awaking that he has in mind? Well, he's referring to the waking up from the sleep of death. Both in the Old Testament and the New Testament. Sleep is a metaphor for death. You see, it's in Job, Isaiah, Daniel, with Jesus' language and the Apostle Paul. David is anticipating an out-of-this-world hope. So while the wicked men are for this world, David's hope is for another world. A day when he will wake up and be free from the wicked. And when that day happens, he says, what I'm going to be satisfied by is not the fact that Mama's there though that may be wonderful, brethren. I shall be satisfied with your likeness. I will be in your presence. It will be like Moses who communed with God face to face. I will have an unbreakable intimacy beholding the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. The whole psalm begs the question, what do we live for? Are we living for the stuff of this world or are we longing to behold the glory of Christ? There will be a great day of vindication when enemies are overthrown and our souls are hidden in the shadow of the Almighty's wings. Only believers know this kind of deliverance. When enemies are crushed and there's never-ending peace with God. Brethren, whatever your trouble is tonight, may you set your eyes on that day let's pray together Lord we thank you that you are a prayer hearing and answering God we thank you that you pity us in our affliction and we thank you that you keep us as the apple of your eye that we are precious to you Lord we pray that we would believe that you have this loving and tender nature toward us and that our greatest desire would be communion with You. Lord, in our emergencies of trouble in this world, help us to keep our focus upon You and come near with Your stirring help, Your comforting grace, and empower us to look beyond this world to another when we shall be free of all that ails us. And we pray this in the name of the Lord Jesus and all of God's people said, Amen.